How can the earth sustain 8 billion people, or 10, or 12? Can we feed all these people in a responsible and sustainable manner? And how is Singapore's government different from the U.S.? These are some of the questions we ask Mohit Purby, founder of Smart Farms Network, a social impact organization engaged in creating sustainable livelihood for smallholder livestock farms in Asia, and a 24-year veteran of Cargill. Mohit talks about the future of food production and what it's like to live and work in Singapore. All that and more on this episode of the Fortune's Path podcast. We explore the role of virtue in work and family to help you find your own fortune. I'm Tom Noser. Mohit Purby is a longtime leader and entrepreneur in food production. His deeply thoughtful and informed ideas about food governance and corporate success will open your eyes to things that are usually invisible. Mohit talks about why people want to know where their food comes from and how it's produced, why COVID-19 has made this more important than ever, and why we need to get food production closer to the point of consumption to improve security and transparency in our food supply. See if you agree with him on this episode of the Fortune's Path podcast. Mohit, welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with me. My pleasure, Tom. Good morning to you. Yeah. Um, so you're coming all the way from Singapore. That and, is right. Yeah, which I um, I appreciate. And I do want to talk about the differences between Singapore and the U.S., but I have a, I have a smaller question first. Um, there are about 7.6 billion people on Earth now. And according to projections, there's going to be about 8.1 billion by 2025. And the Earth, according to E.O. Wilson, might be able to sustain 9 billion people. How are we going to feed 8.1 billion people? Well, Tom, that is a big question, and that is a question which is baffling today everybody, the regulators and everybody else who's a stakeholder in the food supply chain. Well, the real issue here is not population. We will grow. By year 2050, it is expected that we'll be 10 billion, and by the end of the century, we will be like 12 billion. So it's not about how we feed the world. We can feed the world. It is about how we feed the world in a responsible and sustainable manner. And that is where the problem is, because if you go back since 1970, we've been in what we call a great acceleration. We've been increasing the crops through both cutting the forest as well as increasing the yields. And both of that has been very damaging for the earth. So really the question here is uh, the damage and feeding the world in a sustainable manner. So, yeah, so um, how is that possible then? I mean, you, you mentioned that there's been a lot of deforestation to create uh, new agriculture. And the West is exporting the way it eats to the rest of the world. And our meat-based diet here in the U.S. is really resource intensive. It just, it feels like um, these are, uh, I haven't had that much coffee today, so I'll say, it feels like these are hopeless trends. <laughs> it's like, how can we reverse deforestation and this uh, that, that are what we're eating now um, is consuming so many resources? 
Well, that's a good question. And we have come way too far out for us to mm -hmm. reverse it in a very quick fire manner. So I think what is needed is for us to understand what is the root cause of the problem. Mm -hmm. And the root cause of the problem is that today in terms of the proportion of agriculture to the habitable land, agriculture is already 50% of the habitable land. And out of that 50%, 70% is in livestock farming or effectively livestock is already taking a third of the habitable land. Now, the question is also linking with what you asked earlier, how do we feed? Because when we talk about feeding, we talk essentially about feeding us from the crops as well as our livestock. Mm -hmm. So basically there is a balance. And this is a very complex balance because when we look at the dimensions of this problem, are we looking at it in terms of a global problem because agriculture is pretty much a global supply chain or are we looking at it in terms of a neighborhood farm or at a country level? So first problem is that we have to see it as an integrated global supply chain. And when we see it as an integrated global supply chain, what becomes paramount important is that we see the impact of farming and the impact of consumption, let us say in, in, in the US, so the impact of farming for the exportable countries where U.S. is exporting grains and as well as mm -hmm. the consumption of the U.S. Now, because agriculture is already 50% of the habitable land, how much more do you grow? So one way of doing that is that we grow through the yields. Now, I give you an example. If you go back 100 years and take example of U.S. corn, in the past 100 years, U.S. corn acreages haven't gone up. They have been hovering around 90 million acres. If anything, mm -hmm. they've come down. But we have increased the production 500%. And that has happened because of uh, hybridization of the seeds, genetic modification of the seeds, and pumping in uh, nitrogen and phosphates in the soil. Now, both of that has a damaging impact on the environment because by doing that, what we are doing is agriculture has become the single largest source of uh, pollution in terms mm -hmm. of greenhouse gases. So that's the first problem. Second, because we are taking a very intensive way of farming to increase the yields, it's kind of pretty much become uh, one-way traffic. What I mean by that is that for you to have sustainable agriculture, things should be in balance. What you take from the nature should be pretty much in balance with the regenerative capacity of the nature. And likewise, what you put back in the nature in terms of gases or any other source of pesticides or fungicides, they should be pretty much in balance with the absorptive capacity of the nature. And we have broken those limits about 50 years back. Mm -hmm. So effectively since 1970, what we are taking from the earth is far more than what the earth can regenerate. And likewise, what we are putting back into the earth is way beyond earth's absorption capacity. Now, what happening because of that is that the gases are getting accumulated in the earth uh, atmosphere, which is leading mm -hmm. to the big greenhouse gas issues which we face today. And likewise, what we are pumping into the, uh, into the earth in terms of nitrogen or phosphorus is leaching into the waters. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at our groundwater pollution, the single most important source of that is agriculture. And likewise, those nutrients are getting washed off and also through the natural cycle are going into our water bodies and causing eutrophication, which is the single largest source of uh, the algal blooms and uh, 
loss of uh, loss of habitat. So again, you see it from uh, a biodiversity issue. Agriculture is a source of a problem because very recently the World Wildlife Fund published their report, which is called uh, the Living Planet Index Report. And you'll be surprised to know that we have lost 68% of our biodiversity in the last 50 years. So whether we see it in terms of uh, pollution in the air or the greenhouse gases or pollution in the waters, or in terms of biodiversity losses, everywhere we are at limit. And since 1970, it is in a great acceleration. So what will it take to reverse it? Even if we stop everything today, we can't do that. So Mm -hmm. in a sense, uh, you know, if I just give you in terms of the resources of the earth, we are already at 1.5 times, or in other words, we need additional half of the earth resources to Mm -hmm. sustain. So we have, in a sense, we have already created such a big negative deficit that even if we stop here, we can't solve it. So the way to solve that is through some other ways, which is uh, finding the balance and looking at regenerative practices, which by itself then opens up a completely different uh, subject altogether, Tom. Yeah, that's food technology, I guess. Um, So it's that there's the only way out of this thing is to innovate your way out of it. The whole, from what you're saying, is so deep. If you simply kind of regulated practices, it would still be insufficient. It might help, but it wouldn't be enough. And so the only way out of the hole is through technology. Is that correct? Well, yes. One is technology. And the second of all is, uh, you know, a consensus that uh, this is a problem. I mm-hmm. think when we look at uh, any problem, there are two ways we can solve it, right? And when we are talking about a problem of such magnitude, uh, mm-hmm. there are only two ways to solve it. One is a top-down approach where the regulators come together mm-hmm. and uh, set out very proactive uh, uh, regulatory policies. And the second of all is uh, I knew as consumers uh, gain our consciousness and we change our habits. And eventually we build a system together. Now when we are looking at the problem in the face of whether it is climate problems or the reasons for those um, climate problems, including agriculture, unfortunately, there is no consensus. So so in uh, five years back, when we had the Paris Climate Summit, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of uh, seemingly we all agreed that we acknowledge that climate is a problem and uh, there were... uh, steps agreed but then you know since then there is not much progress so i think when i look at the examples of uh, what are the places where countries have a very proactive approach towards it i can only think of europe where the european mm-hmm. union has now set out what they call a green deal whereby year 2050 they want to be carbon neutral so uh, so one is that uh, that the regulatory environment in itself will push the the actions on the stakeholders. So effectively, as a part of the Green Deal, uh, you know, they want to cut down the the pesticides by 30% and and similarly want to be carbon neutral. So that that is going to have a huge impact on the companies and the consumers. And likewise, uh, from a consumer standpoint, it is about uh, how much conscious you are for your consumption. Because one of the key problems we face today is food loss and waste. And yes. food loss and waste has got a dimension which is contro- controllable at the end of consumers. So, again, it is also about uh, 
the consciousness and responsibility of the, the consumers to acknowledge and, and play a role in solving this problem, Tom? Yeah, the, the um, collective action of, of 8.1 billion people is very powerful. Um, and the difficult, there are many difficulties in harnessing that collective action. And one of them is reaching some sort of political consensus that it's a problem to begin with. Because um, so you can sort of take a look at Brazil. Uh, the leader of Brazil's point of view is, is that these are our rainforests. We should cut them down and burn them if we feel like it, because uh, it's our land. And but the impact of that decision obviously is global. Um, but there hasn't been any. Um, well, this is sort of there's no real global consensus to say, well, we should maybe buy the rainforests from the, the Brazilians. And that would obviously is uh, in some sense almost an act of war because it's certainly a going beyond um, the national borders and integrity of that country. And yet it feels like the, the problems, uh, as you say, are international. Food is, food is a global issue. And in the absence of any kind of global communication, or pardon me, global coordination, um, it can tend to feel sort of hopeless. So I'll, I'll say the romantic idea of approaching the problem is small farms. And uh, so, you know, progressives like me like to think, well, small farms are the solution. Big farms are a real problem. As, tell me, I mean, you, you work for Cargo for many years, which I think is the world's largest food producer. What is the difference between small farms and big farms? And are small farms actually any better? Well, so you asked two questions and I'll answer them separately. So first, coming back to uh, the impact of production, let us say, in a surplus country like uh, Brazil in this example, and its uh, consequent impact on a consumption country. And I fully agree with you that to first and foremost look at this problem in totality, we need to look at and have uh, have reference points which take into consideration both the point of production and consumption. What I mean by that is that if you only penalize, let us say in this example, Brazil for deforestation, mm -hmm. but not you are not looking at those countries which are importing grains from Brazil or meat from Brazil, then uh, we are not uh, looking at the pro problem in holistic uh, sense. So we also need to look at both the point of production and consumption when we are looking at the environment impact. So that's first part. Uh, second of all, uh, uh, well, you know, it is unfair for any country today to say that because they were uh, late to join the party, and when I say that, I say it in the sense of economic progress, and this is where the developing world has got an issue against the developed world, that, hey, you, you industrialized long before you created this problem, and now if you do not let us use the natural resources, how do we progress? That's, that's the fundamental problem, right? And I think that is where... Uh, having some kind of uh, uh, si some kind of systems where incentives are uh, given to the developing world, whereby they are incented not to use the natural resources uh, disproportionate to the regenerative and absorptive capacity, knowing very well that that is going to also impact their own development is the is the way forward and there are uh, there are carbon credits and there are mm -hmm. you know also proposals for uh, uh, for incentives but again these things need global consensus and at this moment unfortunately there are good ideas but they are not being implemented now coming back to your second question so then does it mean that small farms hold the answer well before covid 
actually small farms were at the kind of almost seen as uh, on the verge of extinction. And the reason for that is because of the way we set up our food systems. Now, our food systems are very linear. They kind of uh, survive on what we call economies of scale. So effectively, the bigger you uh, get, the more uh, efficient you are. And effectively, what it did, the consumption became uh, pretty much centralized around the Asian countries and, uh, and the production uh, got concentrated to the countries in, uh, you know, with large agrarian uh, land areas. Now, that worked very, very well because everybody benefited because of that and food was cheaper and, uh, you know, nobody objected to that. But the smallholder farmers could not match the efficiencies of the large industrial intensive farming, whether we talk about uh, production farming or we talk about animal farming. But post-COVID, that has been upended because what COVID has done, you know, uh, COVID has uh, kind of caught our attention, the attention of a normal person uh, around food safety and security. For the first time, when we started seeing the food shelves uh, being empty, we kind of, for the first time, thought about uh, food being a scarce resource. And uh, that is where the, the resiliency of supply chains and the fault lines in globally integrated linear production models is uh, being taught about. And, and I believe as a result of that, uh, the local supply chains having a shorter supply chains, smallholder farmers, vocal for local. These are the kinds of things which suddenly has, uh, has found a lot of favor and traction. And uh, I do believe that uh, this would be a go forward, not only to sustain the smallholder farmers, but also possibly addressed some of the problems which we face today in our global supply chains. Tom? Yeah, so it's, that's really interesting. So I was going to say, COVID has exposed some of the insecurity of the of our, um, as you say, food supply. And like one of the, one of the interesting stories we saw in the states was the outbreak of COVID among people who worked in food processing plants. They're close together, and there was some terrible, terrible um, impl- uh, outbreaks in. I think I can't remember the states. I apologize, unfortunately, but. It was bad. And um, what we saw was people who had previously been thought of as um, disposable minimum wage workers suddenly became essential workers. And um, to your point, it opened our eyes up to the fragility of what felt like an industrial process of getting food on the table. Um, So it sounds like incorporating small farms uh, that are closer to the point of consumption into the food supply chain can um, make that supply chain more robust. It's a little bit like um, the concept of sort of why the internet was created. So, you know, initially when uh, we had computer to computer communication, it was through mainframes, which weren't, which if there was a failure in a certain point caused a failure for the entire system. And the concept of uh, the internet was that um, you couldn't shoot a missile at one part of the network and take the whole network down because it was so distributed that made it vastly more robust. And so if you think about the food supply chain a little bit like the Internet, it's how do you get the point of production as close to the point of consumption as possible? I mean, but um, so can vertical farming, can urban farming, can um, things like hydroponics and, and uh, other technologies that don't require soil? 
can those help bring the food supply closer to the point of consumption? Well, definitely. I think post-COVID, we are going to see some fundamental realignment in the food systems. Now, we are talking about a very large system here, Tom. So to think of uh, completely redesigning that is uh, kind of very utopic and not possible. Mm -hmm. But I believe uh, what we are going to see is, first and foremost, uh, a consumer which is going to seriously ask for where is the food coming from? Mm -hmm. Because post-COVID, it is not just the food security, which has become a concern for the consumer. It is also the food safety, right? And I'm going to touch upon that in terms of how the food systems today are also responsible for zoonotic diseases, which is very similar to what happened in case of COVID. Uh, it didn't come from a, from a livestock or a, or a poultry farm, but uh, it's kind of pretty similar to how a disease uh, today can transmit from animals to human. So people are not conscious. And as a result of that, they're going to be asking for much more in terms of visibility on the food which they are consuming. Now, how do you provide that today? Because the current system is broken. You do not know where the food is originated and where it is consumed because it is just a very, very long distance, right? So I think we break it down in a couple of steps. First and foremost, uh, traceability and the supply chain visibility will become paramount within the existing system and the changes which we will make in that system. So what it means by that is no more you can have a, you know, a production houses completely disconnected with the consumption houses. So that's going to be the first change. Second change is in terms of the food security and resilience, which brings in the point of uh, uh, consumption being closer to the point of production. Now, again, I think parts of the food system where the production can be closer to the consumption will be the first one to change. And I believe fresh produce and fruits and vegetables happen to be in that category. The cereals and, uh, and animal uh, livestock, et cetera, may take some more time. But I think uh, uh, we will see some changes very quickly in terms of uh, uh, the production moving closer to the consumption. And when we see that in the context of uh, cities and the urban uh, situations, yes, I think uh, vertical farming and urban farming is going to gain a lot of traction. We are already seeing that. Uh, if I give you an example of uh, Singapore, very small country, 5 million people, only 650 square miles of uh, land area and virtually no production, 90% uh, of the food is imported. But after COVID, government has set up uh, a 30 by 30 uh, formulation, which simply means that by year 2030, we want to increase our food production to 30%. And the only way they can do that is through urban farming. Now, so there are going to be lots of other cities, including uh, consumers who are going to look at rooftop spaces and open gardens to have more resiliency in their food system. And I think that's going to be a very, very uh, uh, opportunistic scenario for for people who believe in locally produced food and the freshness and the environment, less environment impact which has, because they will gain a lot of voice to promote it uh, amongst the masses. The whole idea here is that these novel concepts have to become mainstream. And sometimes there is an opportunity in the crisis. And that's possibly the opportunity in COVID, which uh, we can utilize to mainstream some of these uh, opportunities and and fix the fault lines in the existing system, Tom. 
So you, um, um, that's a really interesting answer. There's a couple of things I want to unpack in there. One of them is um, that consumers can have an influence on innovation in food by or in food production uh, through uh, almost local experimentation. So you say sort of build my own rooftop garden farm. Uh, the other thing you talked about is Singapore. Um, and so I'm, I'm really interested to hear um, uh, about, you've lived in both the United States and in Singapore, and I'm very interested to hear your, your contrast between these two societies, because my understanding of Singapore is that it is not a democracy. It's a, a dictatorship, more or less. Is that correct? Well, no, it is a democracy. Uh, I would say it's not very close to a first first world democracy, but still, it's a democracy. People have uh, voting rights and uh, they have opinions, but it's more controlled. It's not really an open democracy, as you see in in the United States. So, tell me what that means. Not an open democracy. Well, what I mean by that is there are certain areas where uh, you know, uh, if you see through the lens of uh, a very libertarian concept, you may not see the liberty, whether it is in terms of uh, uh, you know, expression or media and some of the other rights related to uh, being dictated from the top. But I think besides that, it's still a very open uh, country and you have expression and, uh, and uh, have all the democratic rights as you have in any democratic country. Huh? So you're... Um, uh... Okay, this is this, we're diving deep into my ignorance here, so I apologize. I'll try to keep this brief. <laughs> it's like um, your officials are elected, and you have a parliament. That is correct. Okay, and so if you're unhappy with the parliament, you can vote them out, but their regulatory power might be stronger than it is in the United States. Is that accurate? Well, yeah, you can say it that way because it's a single party. It has been uh, in uh, power since the independence. It's very mm-hmm. strong, a very progressive government. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I can also build an argument from the other side where it's a government which is possibly one of the most efficient uh, governments. And uh, given a choice, people don't want to vote them out. But mm-hmm. yes, they have the democratic right to vote the government out. And uh, yeah, I mean, I have seen progressively over last. Uh, two election cycles, the vote share has come down. So which means mm-hmm. people are exercising their rights to mm-hmm. to express their opinion and maybe mm-hmm. also driven by, you know, new electorate, which is now eligible for voting the millennials and the Gen Z, mm-hmm. and they have different mm-hmm. opinions. Uh, but I think uh, the system is very democratic uh, and, you know, it's very fair elections, but it's, um, it's also just single party. So to some extent, there is a concentration of power and and that gives a, a kind of, you know, I would say a little bit more authoritarianship at times. So this this is interesting. It's the concept of governance in organizations in general. So you worked at Cargill, uh, which is a very large organization, and now you are an entrepreneur. Um, and one of the things you were doing at Cargill was entrepreneurship inside of a large organization. So um, a, a corporation is essentially a single party government. Um, and so talk to me about how you were able to achieve um, entrepreneurship inside of a large single party organization, because typically we don't think about big companies as being hotbeds for innovation. Well, that's a good question. And I think uh, 
to some extent, I was lucky because I started my career in India uh, back then in 1995. Cargill mm-hmm. was uh, just a very small office in India. Indian economy was growing. So Cargill had a lot to gain by giving that entrepreneurial capabilities and uh, and uh, rights to their uh, to their managers to exercise and grow the business. So I think I benefited from that. And uh, when I moved to United States, uh, I think that's the part which I kind of uh, didn't like uh, because it was very matured and the market was uh, kind of, uh, you know, less challenging if I were to say. So Mm -hmm. driven by the business environment and uh, the construct in which we were operating, uh, there wasn't really also a need for you to be very entrepreneurial because, uh, you know, the way I looked at it, uh, you know, uh, my job in India was more like what I used the analogy of uh, running on a treadmill. However mm-hmm. far I ran, I, I didn't move an inch, right? Mm-hmm. And, in the, and in the United States, it was more about managing a very well-functioning system. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the part. It's, it's kind of a contrast between the markets. And, and that's the reason I chose to come back to Asia. Uh, and uh, yeah, and since uh, then, it has been the same story again, because the Asian markets, uh, all the markets I managed, were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the cusp of uh, transformation. And, you know, those market structures give you the opportunity even within a large organization to to progress on a very uh, entrepreneurial uh, spirit and uh, capability. So I think, yeah, I was uh, kind of, uh, I benefited from that, Tom. So it sounds like Cargill recognized that they did not understand the Indian market and that they needed people who were native of India to help them navigate that market. Is that accurate? I think all the big companies know that uh, however large they have, uh, they have Mm -hmm. global corporate systems and standard Mm -hmm. operating processes, but they know Mm -hmm. that when you go to a local market, uh, these are completely different uh, capabilities needed. And Mm -hmm. I think not just Cargill, I think all large corporations have learned that you need talent which understands the local market and can navigate around those challenges uh, to help build a successful business. So this is it. Um, my wife is reading The Best and the Brightest, which is David Haberston's um, uh, review of the Vietnam War. And uh, in many ways, um, the, the tragedy of Vietnam was a misunderstanding by the United States of what was actually happening in Vietnam. We applied a theory of the domino theory, which did not wasn't real and it didn't reflect the reality on the ground of a war of independence. And so to me, this kind of goes to the, the danger of single party thinking or a single party system is uh, if Cargill had gone to India with the point of view of food is food, agriculture is agriculture, whether it's in Texas or uh, Punai, no difference, all the same, they would have failed. And, but governments do that all the time. And so part of the security of Singapore, it sounds like, is that um, the government there, and again, I'm going to go back to say I'm ignorant, so you need to correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the government there knows what it doesn't know. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I think the way to put it forward is that the government knows that what are the limitations mm-hmm. of a very small country uh, and uh, and they operate within that limitation 
by maximizing uh, the human capital as well as uh, the capabilities they have generated through a very strong governance structure. So I think uh, if if one lesson which stands out uh, in in the context of Singapore, it is how a very well functioning and a well government governed country can find its place in the global order and and kind of you know punch way above its own weight by simply being a very well governed and well administered country. Mm-hmm. So so that's that's in the context of the country. Coming back to your uh, question on the large corporations failing if they don't have a very good local insights. I think that's spot on because even today, I would not say that large corporations uh, do not have expensive lessons. I mean, in the context of uh, Cargill or uh, many other organizations, you know, the legacy organizations at the end of the day have a difficult choice because they also cannot decentralize a lot. You know, when you're a Cargill, you have 200,000 people working in 70 countries. You need to have some very common Themes which which are uh, kind of you know I would say non-negotiable. So in Cargill we used to call it guiding principles, right? So when it comes to guiding principles, doesn't matter whichever country you are, it's non-negotiable. But sometimes what happens is outside of the guiding principles, also you become a little bureaucratic. Some policies, some some operating processes, and for all good reasons because they have held good for. Uh, you know, multiple years in some other context. So I think it's about uh, learning it quickly. And, uh, you know, what we call in management, uh, you know, being global, but acting local. And Mm -hmm. how do you act local without compromising your global standard operating processes and your overall architecture is the art. And I think the companies which do it well, they succeed pretty well. And those who don't go through some painful lessons and then they learn it too. Tom? (laughs) Uh, I love the idea of, of the non-negotiable principles. So uh, I'm I'm a um, uh, strong believer in the idea that we grow rich by pursuing virtue, um, and I think that um, you do that by establishing a set of understanding what your principles are, and then um, living out those principles. And so I'm curious, what were some of Cargill's principles and did people take them seriously? Like when sometimes a very common phenomenon is the missions written on the wall and then nobody knows it, reads it, or uses it. Um, tell me about uh, Cargill's culture and uh, what some of those principles were and how they worked in, in daily life. Well, that's a very good question. And I think uh, companies like Cargill stand out in terms of uh, being, you know, absolutely deliberate. Uh, in terms of uh, pursuing and training their people. And, and it's just not people. It's also the entire stakeholding system around your business environment. So in the context of Cargill, now we have simplified it. Uh, it simply means we will follow the law and we will not do anything wrong as per the local laws. Now, there are seven guiding principles under that, but this is the overarching theme. So, you know, the seven principles are around bribery in terms of respecting the laws, in terms of uh, respecting each other and and some other things. But broadly, this is where it is, and this is non-negotiable. Now, to your point, when you go and set up a business in a new country and think of the countries where, uh, you know, a, a Midwestern company, which has existed for 150 years, uh, is expanding into Asia, and you know the the business environment is uh, evolving. Trade practices are evolving. Uh, you know, sanctity has different connotation. 
culture comes in in terms of uh, rules versus principles. So th these are very difficult challenges. Uh, but I think what it happens is as an organization, when you know that you're willing to pay the price for it in terms of, uh, you know, maybe missing out on a business opportunity. But what you're going to do is you are going to use these uh, guiding principles as your brand promise to the to the stakeholders then in the long run it becomes very beneficial if anything it begins to help you to navigate the challenges uh, in otherwise very uh, kind of you know if if i may say uh, abstract or sometimes uh, very unclear territories right which is where the big companies make the mistake of not understanding mm -hmm. the local systems mm -hmm. well so i think that's one in my uh, my own experience, there were times when uh, we paid a price for it in terms of maybe not getting a license on time or or maybe getting a, a, a unnecessary uh, you know backlash from the trade simply because they were against uh, some practices of large companies, but simply because of keeping a very strong brand promise and a very clean uh, image and uh, you know and completely non-negotiable uh, sets of values around guiding principles. In, in the long run, we realize that that kind of helped us well. It comes with a lot of uh, perseverance, a lot of uh, training, and ensuring that people get it right, that you know, being wrong for short-term gains is not going to hold you good in the long run in the company itself. And it's non-negotiable, so, so it's, it can be very career-damaging as well, Tom. That's really, I love that. Um, so I think there's the law, and then there's what people actually do. And as an international uh, organization, um, you're going to be primarily ignorant about the the sort of what people actually do. Um, and so the to me, setting your guiding principle as we obey the law as it is written, and we, we obey all of the local laws, even if all the other growers around us are breaking the law, we will not break the law. Because that is our guiding principle. To me, that is a really interesting differentiation. As you say, it may be slower and maybe more expensive initially, but eventually you will start to stand out in the market as being the most law-abiding of producers. Is that? I mean, is that sort of how it happened? Yeah, that is exactly how it uh, it happened, and that's exactly how it continues to happen. Because uh, you know you become more or less the gold standard in the market. Mm -hmm. Now I am not going to generalize it, but I'm only specifically going to talk about situations, more so in the developing world where things are not clear. Right? Mm -hmm. There are situations where things are absolutely uh, illegal, you know, and unethical. So let's not talk about those. But things which can be kind of subject to your interpretation, right? As a person on ground uh, who's who's wearing a Cargill hat, you can err. But because you have such clarity and such strong training on what the company holds in letter and spirit, and, and that's completely non-negotiable, it also helps the managers on the ground to have clarity on what they need to do, even though it might mean you know, a loss of business or, or maybe a short-term, uh, uh, some kind of a disturbance to their supply chains or, or a customer business. So I think if anything, it helped. And at the same time, uh, you know, over long term, you create a very strong uh, position in the society with your stakeholders, and then it becomes uh, more like a tailwind. Then it becomes a very positive momentum for you to 
to kind of gain the buoyancy of the system in your favor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the only way to efficiently manage a large organization is through principles. Procedures and policies uh, are very difficult to maintain. They're very expensive to create and to enforce. But if you have a set of guiding principles that are simple, like we obey the law, that can really accelerate decision-making. So if I'm somebody on the ground in a, um, uh, in a foreign country, and I'm not, I don't really know what the right thing to do is because for whatever reason, like you say, I'm in a gray area, um, it's, I, it's easier for me to make that decision if I have a, um, as you say, a non-negotiable guiding principle of, well, what does the law say you're supposed to do here? Do what the law says. Uh, now, laws aren't always clear, but they certainly are going to give you um, a direction about where you want to err if you're um, you're not sure about what the next step is. So I think that's – did you find that that helped to accelerate decision-making, that that sort of cleared away ambiguity? Oh, it did. So was it always uh, very easy? Well, no, because parts of uh, South and Southeast Asia uh, is, you know, very, very evolving, right? So, so whether you see it in terms of the regulatory structure or you see it in terms of the trade practices, at the end of the day, you know, we are only part of a system. We don't control the system, right? Mm-hmm. So being part of the system, you cannot not also be the part of what is, uh, how it is being conducted on ground. But then at the same time, uh, you know, you have absolute clarity that even though you are part of a larger system, when it comes to what is directly in your control and where you have your responsibilities, you are clean. So I think uh, with that understanding, it became easier to navigate the businesses. And I think there are tons and tons of um, uh, incidences and stories which I can narrate uh, in the specific context of multiple countries where um, it really benefited us simply because we were seen as a very responsible company being on the right side of the law all the time, Tom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is um, this to me goes towards strategy versus ethics a little bit. So um, in, the, in the U.S., let's say um, I'm not in a situation, I have a software business. There's very few laws governing software businesses. And um, so what are my guiding principles if I can't fall back on something like, well, what are the regulations in the law say? Well, what would your customers want you to do? That can be a good place to start is to think about like, if you were the customer, what would you want the organization to do in this situation? But a lot of times organizations will take a position where they're thinking about how do I create economic advantage for myself through a set of arrangements, whether those are contracting arrangements, whether they're pulling somebody into a monopoly where essentially I sort of trap them in their business. Um, those are things that are can be extremely powerful tools for generating revenue, but also are um, not what I would call acts of love. Uh, and so it's how does an organization both um, produce, maximize its profits, but do it in a way where it isn't abusing its customers? This is an interesting one. And, you know, I'll also link it to some conversation we were having earlier on the food systems. So, you know, first and foremost, uh, in in today's world, it's almost 
very difficult to see somebody having such a strong uh, dominant position that you can really take advantage of your customers. Maybe in some of the platform-driven software businesses, IT businesses, we have uh, such uh, such situations. But in in uh, the normal brick and mortar food businesses, uh, that's not the situation. Uh, so yeah, there have been instances where a customer, let us say, or a set of customers would have wanted us to fast track a shipment because the shipment was stuck for some regulatory clearances, or get a certificate, uh, you know, uh, being is- issued by a, a regulator uh, to change it, just to you know, um, kind of fulfill the requirements of the importing countries, and uh, we. Uh, we said no. So I think uh, even though we very clearly knew that it would mean, you know, having an unhappy customer, right? So if anything, Tom, it has been on the other way where uh, sometimes the customers had the expectation that while other companies can do this, why can't you do this? Mm -hmm. And we said that, well, we can do this simply because it's not good for your business. Okay. So, So please don't see it as something which we can do. Right? Mm-hmm. It's something we will not do simply because that's not the right thing for us to do, and that's not the right thing for you to do. Now, we can't be very prescriptive with the customers by that, but I haven't seen a situation where, you know, it's more like a dominant position being, uh, being uh, let us say, you know, misutilized or anything. If anything, it's been other way around where, you know, a customer expectation has not been met simply because uh, that wasn't the right thing to do. But let's flip it and see it from a different lens, right? Now, lots of large food companies today are, uh, in a sense, at the receiving end for mm-hmm. all the environment issues or uh, you know diseases which are spreading from animals to human or just plain vanilla uh, uh, you know things like uh, hurricanes and the wildfires all these are horrendous uh, incidences but you know common people are blaming the large corporations whether you are in the energy sector or in the food sector right mm-hmm. now this is a classic problem because uh, we know that to solve this we need to come together on a common platform. This problem is way above a company, way, way above the size and stature of a simple, single company, even a simple, a single country to solve it, right? Now, this is where you have, uh, let us say, producers, and then you have companies and you have consumers. There is a serious mismatch of interest between all three, right? So when you as a company in between I want to find a balance between what is good for the producers and what is good for the consumers. There is a conflict today. So for us to get back to uh, restoring the uh, the earth and the systems which we have broken, we are going to we are needed to do a lot of things, a complete redesigning of our food, food production systems. But when we do that, what it means is it also increases the responsibility of the consumers, right? So when we are talking about responsible consumption to manage food waste, or if we are talking about uh, having uh, products which are uh, climate resistant and are more sustainable, there is a cost associated with that. So that is where you see uh, the market being delinked to the expectation. And the consumer today is... uh, unfortunately desiring, but not willing to pay. So there is also a kind of a conflict today where, uh, you know, it's it's a very kind of, I would say, a difficult situation because 
Uh, how do you fix everything together where it works seamless is a challenge. And uh, I think the consumers are expecting uh, the producers to fix it. <laughs> and, uh, and the producers uh, possibly are uh, at this moment waiting for regulators. And uh, regulators are driven by, uh, to a large extent, uh, politics, right? So that's where uh, things don't come together. So, yeah, I mean, uh, if anything, I would think if the consumers today, uh, you know, step up and be part of this uh, story, working alongside the food companies, maybe that would help, Tom. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. So I've, I've got a long um, history in healthcare, and um, the solution to healthcare is for people to live healthy lives. If we want to drastically reduce the amount of money we spend on healthcare, all we have to do is have people exercise and eat right. If everybody would do those two things, our healthcare expenses would drop to the floor. Well, people don't do those things. And they don't do them for a lot of reasons. And a, a lot of that is related to the food that we eat. And so, as a, I'll say cynically, to think about consumers being able to make a significant dent in uh, the food, I'm going to say food crisis uh, as it relates to global warming, as it relates to consumption of resources. The way I think you had a fantastic way that you summarized it. We're using up one and a half Earths right now. That constitutes a crisis. And um, but getting people to change the behavior on a massive scale to become more conscious of the idea that I shouldn't buy strawberries at a season. You know, I shouldn't buy avocados at a season because of the amount of resources required to produce those things and get them to me. And so I have to start opting out of that. But we look around, it's, it's the same reason the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord was the, the current administration said, do you think China and Russia and Brazil are going to, and India are going to not pollute? Of course they're going to pollute. So why would we tie our hands behind our back? The, the administration is not the only people who carry around that, that idea that collective action is a sucker's game, um, and so I, I, you know, it's I want to believe that making people more informed of the of the impact of their choices can have a positive impact on the environment and on the food crisis, but I'm a little skeptical because I haven't seen racism as another example. We've got 400 years in the United States of establishing racist systems. And uh, there have been periods of enlightenment in our history, but they have been brief and <laughs> brief. And, um, you know, so we, we sort of we had a flash of one here in the spring. Um, but already the, the popularity of that movement is declining. And there's, there's so much um, uh, so much momentum behind sort of keeping doing things the way we've done them. So if you're a technologist, you're going to say, well, the way to solve this stuff is we have to innovate our way out of it. There's just no other way. We have to find means of production which are cheaper and more efficient and uh, not don't consume as much. But then as a capitalist, you say, well, they also have to be profitable. Um, and so this crisis, the, the, the consuming one and a half Earths feels like it's such a big problem. I don't know if capitalism can solve it. I don't know if informed consumerism can solve it. So... That was a lot. I'm interested if you have any reactions. Well, um, I think you've all summarized, and uh, I very strongly believe that uh, we will solve this. 
I mean, in the entire history of mankind, this is not the first time we have dug ourselves in a hole, right? But, you know, the, the mankind has tremendous innovation capacity. When pushed to the wall, we come out of it. Now, the question is, how do we come out of it? This time, seemingly, it's a very disjointed effort because, you know, there are uh, multiple uh, stakeholders and uh, seemingly things are not moving uh, in, in, in the right direction. However, COVID, if there is, uh, again, you know, one good thing which came out of COVID is how quickly the world's, uh, uh, you know, innovation capacity, you know, collaborated to, to work on a vaccine, mm -hmm. right? So... I think in the context of the problem we are talking about in terms of uh, broken food systems and uh, the impact of uh, uh, you know, crop production and livestock on uh, environment, uh, pollution, greenhouse gases, uh, diseases, I mean, there are so many of these things. And I think the way it will get fixed is a combination of regulatory so as I gave you the example of Europe, Europe has already taken the lead. Uh, China came out last week uh, and uh, they said that they are going to be climate neutral by 2060. We need to see the full uh, um, you know, steps there, but they have made that big uh, headline. Uh, um, uh, and then we have the uh, rest of the world, which is getting more conscious post COVID. And I think that is where an active consumerism will help. And now, we need to see whether the activism which we are seeing in consumers, you know, asking for more traceability and, and security of food last beyond COVID or not. But uh, we think it will because, you know, the, this crisis has left a very indelible mark on people and, uh, and it's not going to go away. So I think as a combination of uh, regulatory and a conscious consumer, there will, there will be a momentum. Now, the mm -hmm. question is, the momentum by itself is not good enough. It, it only creates an environment. So what you need is the innovation capacity, right? And I think that is where there are some very exciting stuff happening, Tom. And I do believe that as they get pursued by more countries, uh, we should be able to see a drop in terms of uh, – when I say drop, I mean a reversal in terms of, you know, at least not taking from the environment as much as we are taking today and eventually getting to a, a neutral point. Now, what are those technologies? First and foremost, it's all about regenerative, right? So we are going back to the fundamentals, right? We created a linear system where the system was from production to waste, right? So if you just look at our, uh, our agriculture system, we produce we consume and we waste. It's a linear system. A regenerative is completely opposite of it, right? You are talking about taking from uh, Earth only as much as what you can regenerate, right? And this is completely different from our current practices. So that's first, right? Same for uh, livestock farming. It's a regenerative. Now, what we have done, we have just to build the economies we have actually created uh, segregated production systems for crops and animal farming, right? So it's very common for us to see those large uh, confined animal uh, feeding operations or we call feedlots, right? Now that's a very unnatural cycle of production. A natural cycle of production is for the animals to graze on the land. And you have to have a very sustainable intensification with a very wise you know, combination of production and livestock farming where they are symbiotic, right? In terms of uh, soil getting its nutrients from the 
from the animals and animals grazing on the land, which is not suitable for, let us say, human consumption. So the question here is, if it sounds so simple, why it can be done? The mm -hmm. question is because simply because we have come so far out that as a it needs a combination of regulate regulations, some incentives, as well as a conscious consumer. The consumer is going to hold the power. And I do believe that it's going to be a decisive uh, voice from the consumer, which is going to drive this change. Uh, needless to say, the regulators and incentives are needed too. So I think regenerative agriculture for both production and livestock farming is a solution. Uh, in terms of uh, solving the greenhouse gas problems and the pollution, but that by itself will also not suffice. Then we are now talking about uh, uh, biotechnology. Biotechnology, the, the, I would say the opportunities which we have seen as a result of uh, advancements in cellular biology and computing and combining the two is a uh, opening up tremendous opportunities. So when you look at, uh, let's say, livestock, okay? Now, today, livestock has uh, possibly no place to hide. You don't want to be a livestock producer today. You're kind of seen as the kind of a single source of problem for everything, right? Now, why livestock is a problem today is because, A, it is uh, consuming 70% of the habitable land. So there's a land use problem there. And secondly, it's a very high source of pollution, both in terms of uh, uh, methane as well as CO2. So if I just give you an, an example, if let us say just cattle, beef cattle was a country by itself, it will be the third largest polluter on earth after China and United States. And then you have got issues on water scarcity, right? Mm -hmm. So the problem here is that do we need to really have as many number of cows or uh, for that matter, uh, you know, hogs and chicken? The answer to that is no. Why do we consume them is simply because we like that food, right? We don't consume it simply because that's the only way you can get your protein. If anything, conversion of uh, protein from crops to livestock is a very inefficient way of consuming proteins. Because today, you know, give or take, uh, the ratio is anything between 10 to 25, meaning you take 10 units of protein to convert it to one unit of protein from the animal. So it's a very inefficient production cycle of protein. But why we do that is because we like that food, right? And, and, and food is an experience. Food is just not calories and, and protein. No. Food is a well, state for me. Exactly. Food is life. Food is an experience. So I need to give you that experience for me to say, hey, Tom, be responsible when you eat your hamburger because it is uh, it is responsible for the wildfires in California, right? You would say, yeah, I know that, but I want this experience, right? Mm -hmm. So that is where uh, the advancements of food through the through the you know cellular biology and computing is opening up opportunities on three things. You know what we call plant-based food, uh, what we call cultivated meats and uh, fermentation, and particularly within fermentation, precision fermentation. A plant-based food has become mainstream now. So Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger have done a good job in terms of making it mainstream, right? And taste is important because people are beginning to realize that, well, you know what? Uh, I, I like this taste. It's kind of very close. So, you know, we call them meat analogs because their whole success depends on not asking Ainu to not eat our hamburger, mm -hmm. but giving us a hamburger, which is an analog of what we get from a beef patty, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where the technology is helping. But 
we're going to step forward and you know give or take in next five years to 10 years there's another technology which is uh, very similar to how you have microbreweries now this technology is about taking a stem cell from a live animal through a biopsy and then running this the animal cycle in a bioreactor so mm-hmm. effectively using a single cell uh, from uh, from an animal and using growth mediums and uh, and nutrients in a bioreactor you're producing meat and that technology is transformative because it's going to do two things. First, it's completely um, environmental neutral. Uh, no animal welfare issue is there. And there's no antibiotic because you're doing it in a very sterile and sanitized conditions. But it's completely decentralized. All you know is that now you have these production units closer to the uh, to the cities. And, uh, you know, you don't need the the livestock or, or large, uh, you know, confined uh, feedlots, uh, you know, big feedlots. So that's the second and the third of all is uh, so let me I want to make sure I understand that that's amazing. So that means that you can grow chicken breasts without making chickens. That is true. You can do any meat uh, by just taking a stem cell. So that technology is already there for in the biopharma industry uh, and now you know it is uh, being developed for food industry in the food application. Now, the technology is in the, I would say, a pretty primitive uh, stage, but the first lab-based prototype has been created. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there are are companies now who are raising money and they've raised significant amount of uh, capital. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, kind of very promising that we should be seeing a product out uh, in a couple of years. So that's transformative. And then third... Yeah, Tom? No, keep going, keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah, and and then third of all is nutrition. So I think another very transformative uh, application of food is food for medicine and nutrition. And again, this is a very innovative field where uh, what people have learned post-COVID is that why did uh, the orange juice sales uh, went up? Or why is it that suddenly we started looking at the back of the pack and seeing, do I understand what is going in this food pack or not? So that consciousness has come, or I would say has been exacerbated after COVID. And Mm -hmm. people want to know what they are consuming and they want to know how it can solve their health and nutrition problems. And this is where the advancement of biotechnology and food sciences is again, uh, you know, looking at uh, very innovative products which is going to, to a large extent, personalize your food. And this is all technology driven. So all you know is that there's an app, you go into that app, you put your uh, lipid profiles and some of your hereditary, uh, you know, and your family background, and suddenly you have a very customized food for you, which is all very natural. So you would say, how is it different from, you know, nutraceuticals? That's still the pharma grade. This is food. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a combination of food, and then that food even comes to you through uh, some gourmet products, you know, bars or any other way in which you want it. So I think if I put the three uh, uh, things together, one, a traditional farming, but being done in the regenerative uh, format, mm-hmm. two, uh, biotechnology, which will, to a large extent, uh, you know, m- create very distributed uh, food production centers, particularly meat, closer to the consumption centers through lab-grown meat or cultivated meat, which is very clean and uh, completely, uh, you know, uh, environment-friendly. And third of all is uh, personalized nutrition and food for health, 
when we put these three things together, this is the future of food we are talking. And uh, I think uh, this can solve many problems. It will not only be uh, a good indicator for kind of reversing the trend to bring 1.5 uh, times mm -hmm. Earth down to one Earth, hopefully in our lifetime. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but more importantly, uh, you know, it will solve the other what we call negative externalities which are there from our food system today, which is health and obesity. Yeah. And you know, we, we don't put a price for these externalities, but if you put a cost today, you know, just the healthcare cost related to food waste and related to, uh, you know, food consumption, mm -hmm. when I say food consumption, I mean, uh, which is linked to, you know, high fat foods and, and, uh, and obesity is close to about $3 trillion. Yeah. So when you add that back, you suddenly see there's a huge opportunity here. So I am optimistic simply because I see these things uh, on the horizon. But uh, yeah, to your point, it will need a concerted effort from regulators and the industry, but also a significant effort from the consumers. Tom? That's that's that was an amazing answer. I feel so much more optimistic than I did at the beginning of the show. <laughs> I really appreciate that. It makes me think too about like long term thinking and the power of it. In that, um, it's cheaper to create ice cream that doesn't make us fat and cause diabetes than it is to fix diabetes. Um, and uh, because we're, it's hard for us to change our habits. So the concept of me being able to go to the grocery store and buy prime beef that was grown in a lab. And there was no animal that was slaughtered. There was no methane created in the process. There was no grain that was consumed, but it still tastes just as good off the grill. Um, that to me is like, wow, what an amazing future. <laughs> well, it is. And, you know, if you were to ask, why did COVID happen and why is it that we could not uh, control mm -hmm. it? Well, I would say that's backward looking. If mm -hmm. you're forward looking, you are going to look at seven out of 10 diseases today, uh, which can be pandemic in nature, come from animals. Mm -hmm. So, so long we continue to live on an earth, which is 70% inhabited by animals, you are just one pandemic away from uh, any other incidents. So that's the mm -hmm. first problem. Second problem is uh, today, the 70% of antibiotics <clears throat> are being used in animals. So what is going to happen is that think of a situation that if a superbug, which is now antibiotic resistant, comes to humans, you suddenly have a huge problem, right? So there is a very healthcare-related issue as well, which mm -hmm. is um, which is unquantifiable today as COVID has shown us, right? COVID happened, uh, you know, after 100 years of uh, Spanish flu, right? So the next one may happen uh, much closer or earlier, unless, and of course, we fix these fault lines. So not only in terms of uh, building a safe and resilient uh, food system, which is climate friendly, I also think it is uh, kind of an imperative now for us to have a very strong demarcation between how we uh, stop the transmission of disease to the extent possible from uh, from uh, cohabiting humans with animals. And that's a, that's a tall order as well. Tom? Yes, it is. Um, I, I want to um, change subjects here briefly, do a, a very uh, kind of a um, not, not related to things we've been talking about so far, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, you personally. So you, you have a son, don't you? 
Yes, I have a son and a daughter. A son and a daughter. How old are they? My daughter is 20. My son is 14. Four, 14. So uh, I've got three. My youngest is um, almost 21 and then 22 and 25. And my 22-year-old uh, often um, reminds me of how much I've screwed up the world that uh, he's inheriting. And so um, – you worked very hard to get to where you are. You have a physics degree with high honors from a university in India, and that is no small achievement. So I'm imagining that from a very young age, um, you were a diligent student and and you worked hard. Is that reasonable? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And so do you want that same life for your son? Or uh, when you think about the sacrifices you've made to get to where you are, um, is do you want your son to have that experience? Do you want him to have something different? You know, my kids have benef- benefited from uh, we traveling across countries. So they, uh, you know, they are blessed to have a very cross uh, cultural experience through their education. And now my daughter is uh, studying in uh, in the United States. She's studying at Johns Hopkins University, and my son is studying at an international school in Singapore, where. Uh, he's got close to about 20 nationalities in his uh, in his class. So this is a very diverse experience, which I absolutely want uh, my kids to have. Uh, I think uh, in the context of your question, times were different. Uh, I came from a very small town and uh, difficult uh, uh, conditions to find your way up. And uh, there was a lot more uh, struggle, if I were to say, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, finding your way up and also, you know, changing countries and adjusting in different cultures and climates also comes with its own sets of challenges. Uh, I think my children are more resilient simply because of the exposure they have got. And I absolutely want them to treasure it. But I think it does not mean that I don't have an expectation. What I have an expectation from that, from them is, and for all other kids who are in similar situation is that you, you have uh, you have an advantage of, uh, you know, being in uh, in education systems which are very diverse and very progressive. The important thing for you is what are you going to do with that opportunity, right? How are you going to make an impact in this world, uh, you know, significantly, uh, you know, leveraging this exposure and this education? So to some extent, the pressure is equally high on them too mm-hmm. because, uh, because I think they are, uh, they are uh, being groomed to, look at uh, much more uh, deeper in terms of bigger problems. And I think it's not just from parenting, but also from the environment and the system in which they are being educated. So all the problems which we have been speaking, I think are Mm -hmm. things which I learn a lot from my kids as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm kind of so surprised that, uh, you know, they are so conscious and they, uh, they are constantly seeking solutions. And I think that's something which is going to also set them up for some uh, tough times when they come into the workforce alongside all other equally talented uh, kids. Tom? It's really, um, I I totally agree with you that there is a lot of pressure on people, young people to decide what it is that they want to do. And a lot of ways when, when you have a lot of resources, it can be paralyzing because there's so many choices. It's very hard to make a choice. Um, and um, I would say that uh, my ambition for my children is that they live ethical, moral lives and that they find people who love them and that they love that person. Um, 
what I'm realizing is, is that I'm not, I don't know how to tell my children how to be a good person in the coming society. It's going to be different. And so I'm, I'm aging. And just like when I look at my parents and I think, um, you know, that there's, um, you know, that they're, um, out of touch or that they have certain beliefs, which are really, um, I'll say unappealing to the majority of people my age, my kids are going to have the same thing with me. So I don't know how to tell them what it will mean to be a moral person. They're going to have to discover that on their own. Yeah, you're right. And I think the way uh, we are addressing that with our children is to, you know, uh, kind of, you know, encourage them to think that they are global citizens. Mm -hmm. And so effectively, you know, broaden their perspective around the problems and a, a broader, in a broader sense, how they see them fitting into, uh, into the world. So what it does is two things. First and foremost, uh, you know, the perspective, with that broader perspective, I think they become more resilient. But at the same time, you know, there is just so much happening in the world. Right. So being in Singapore in a very protected and a very, very, uh, you know, good, clean first world city, you could suddenly be very isolated and, you know, cocooned. So I think it has helped me to ensure that they remain very close to the reality and understand that, you know, what are the challenges and problems. So to that extent, uh, yeah, be good, do good and and eventually, uh, you know, uh, be part of the the solutions as much as you could, leveraging the position of uh, opportunities which your education has created for you, are some of the themes which we we have uh, discussions with our children. I love that. So um, I have a good friend who grew up um, uh, around Newark, New Jersey, and she and her brother um, were, you know, obviously from humble circumstance, and her brother was having trouble with his kids. They were sort of acting out and such. And so he drove them into Newark and he pointed at the house where he grew up and he said, that's where I grew up. And the kids were like, yeah, you grew up there. And he was, he was trying to make obviously a point to them about uh, what you have versus what you might have and um, not letting, not believing that you are all there is. Um, and this, this to me is like, it's the arrogance of um, progressives who believe that, well, if, if we all sort of read the package of the food, we can solve the world. Well, you can. You have that ability. But there are a lot of other people who have a kid waiting in the car while they're in the grocery store because they are a single parent with nobody to help watch that kid or the kids with them. And the kids got, you know, issues that it's very difficult. You don't have the time. You don't have the focus of the energy to be able to make those kinds of conscious decisions. And so I think it's not judging someone who doesn't have the same, uh, you know, the, the same capacities that I have, uh, but instead recognizing that we're all going to the same place in the end. Everybody ends up dead. And so that is the great equalizer. And so we are not different species. We're all the same on the same journey. Um, but I think that that's, that's something that's intellectually I don't have any difficulty understanding it, but emotionally, I have to say, my my lizard brain gets in the way. Well, I think most of the parents uh, have that situation today, Tom, and uh, you know, 
the only way uh, I think one can navigate around that is uh, to to ensure that the children eventually have uh, a decision-making capacity, you know, and a very strong independent view of the world, which is neither, you know, carrying the baggage of their parents and nor at the same time, a very singular and a utopic view. And I think so long uh, that can be done, I think we will prepare them well to navigate the problem. They're going to face big problems. We, we are going to leave them with a host and tons of problems, right? And it's not going to be easy, but I also think that uh, with this kind of a broader approach, uh, you know, they will have the resilience to navigate around that. So at least that's the hope I have for my children, Tom. <laughs> I love that hope. Well, Mohit, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. And um, I wish you um, great success with Smart Farm. Tom, thanks for having me over. Thank you. Fortune's Path podcast is a production of Fortune's Path. We help businesses implement product management culture to plan more insightfully, lead more effectively, and grow more rapidly. Product consulting, sales enablement, research and analysis. Fortune's Path. Deep thinking, hardworking, always learning. Special thanks to Mohit Purby for being our guest. Music and editing of the Fortune's Path podcast are by my son, Ted Noser. I'm Tom Noser. Thanks for listening, and I hope we meet along Fortune's Path.